Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. They make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind or doing another thing that they haven't even thought of because you're that creative. You came up with it. They have beautiful templates. They have the ability for you to customize just about anything. And you can have a website to show yourself off here in the year 2020. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for today's show comes from the James Altucher Show. What do Paul Reiser, Tiffany Haddish, Mark Cuban, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and hundreds more have in common? They are all on the James Altucher Show. James is screwed up and needs advice from his heroes. For some reason, they talk to him. Subscribe to the James Altucher Show podcast, the James Altucher, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R, show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also excited for the Cracked Podcast's first ever interview with a combine harvester operator. Uh, that's right. We're talking to a combine harvester operator today uh, in the sense that our guest has done that one time. And a combine harvester, if you don't know, is a massive agricultural vehicle. It's used for harvesting grain crops. It does a couple processes all at once, like threshing and winnowing. That's why it's a combine. And I'm also bearing the lead a bit when I call our guest a combine harvester operator, because today's guest is Kai Rizdahl. This is his second appearance on our show, and you can hear him just about every weekday as the host of Marketplace from American Public Media. That's a radio show and podcast that is America's number one broadcast program about the economy. Beyond that, Mr. Ristall is an Emmy winner, a Navy veteran, a very funny person, as you'll hear, and he added Combine Harvester Operator in a brief way to his resume when his team visited Iowa last month. Now, you may not think very often about uh, massive agricultural machinery or about agriculture at all, but the team at Marketplace, Kai and his colleagues, do think about it a lot. And so their excellent show is the, the key source of material in today's episode, which is parts of the U.S. economy you ought to know more about. One more time, we're talking about parts of the U.S. economy that you ought to know more about. One of the ways being alive is more interesting than people think it is, is that the world is massively interconnected, uh, and in a lot of strange ways often, in a, in a very cool way. So today we're talking about three chunks of the U.S. economy that have astonishing new things happening in them. Like, you will legitimately be surprised, I think, even though they're things that you probably drive by or come across in your everyday life. Many of them are also things that you are paying tax dollars for, especially the agricultural one. We'll get to that. So you want to know what's going on there. Also, we'll look at one global economic phenomenon and thing going on that could change the entire balance of world trade. Also, a single U.S. law that is country by country moving across the entire world. It's already the structure of the Internet, and it's determining how you hear this podcast, among many other Internet things. I am thrilled Kai returned to our show. He's the world heavyweight champion of digging into this stuff in a way that's both completely informationally solid and extremely fun. So let's let you hear all that. Please sit back or shift the speed of your combine harvester, because as I learned when Kai drove one, some harvesters have speed setting options of turtle, almost rabbit, and rabbit. It's three things on a dial, a turtle and a rabbit, and then the spot before the rabbit. It's like a toy or something. It's very exciting. 
Anyway, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Kai Ristall. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Hi, thank you so much for making the time, especially on, uh, uh, we're taping this on the Wednesday before it comes out, and yeah. it's like a, a trade deal signing it's day. It's a trade it's a deal day. What can I, in fact, it, there he is, right on CNN over your shoulder. Oh, yeah, I didn't yeah. I didn't even see it behind yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, if, if anything burns down back there. That's right, know. I'll let you know. <laughs> and we're looking at parts of the economy that are, other than on your great show, I think less talked about and less, yeah. less seen and less noticed. Yeah. And one of them is retail in general, because we all know that that stores are dealing with the internet and everything else. On your show, you guys talk to many people who are just in these sectors and places and things. And I was curious how long you guys have been in touch with the Butte Plaza Mall. Oh, man. Out at, uh, that is, uh, specifically, yeah. Al- Alana Furco uh, Alana manages Furco. the mall is the manager of the Butte Plaza Mall. I think she has, in the time we've been talking to her, gotten promoted from assistant manager to manager. And we've been talking to her for a couple of three, four years now. You know, we found her just by cold calling, right? Malls and retail places and and just trying to get a sense. And, And she's been really interesting because, first of all, you don't hear a lot of people from Butte, Montana on public radio or in journalism writ large. It's a different slice of this economy. But she's got a challenge because she's managing a big retail mall which has lost both of its anchor customers. One was a JCPenney and the other one was something. And so her job, with assistance from leasing agents, of course, is to fill those holes. And so how do you do that when retail and chains are, generally speaking, not having a great time, right? I mean, there's the Amazon effect, there's, there's, you know, global sourcing and all of that. Her biggest challenge has been to fill those two anchor stores. And so it's actually been really interesting. She got one she rented to a call center, and right. now has gotten 300 people in there. They've gotten 300 jobs in Butte, Montana. And the other one, she I just talked to her the other day, like a couple of weeks ago. She's hoping she can get a grocery store in there. Whatever you got to do to fill the space, I suppose, when you've got these giant facilities that, you know, have big footprints and are centers of the community, she's actually just making it work, which is fascinating. When she was talking about the grocery store, I think she was saying that the anchor store where they would put yeah. the grocery store it like the footprint of that right. basically used to be a grocery store so they think H- that's history may not you know, uh, repeat itself but it rhymes or whatever that is. yeah <laughs> for sure it's great right there's a little poetry there yeah it seems like it's a thing where i, I remember as a kid the the general vibe was oh malls are squishing smaller stores they've yeah. taken them out yeah. and then now we're like oh no the internet is squishing the malls what do we do with these yeah. like large engines of the economy and spaces and, and how do we fill it in yeah. No, it's yeah. it's actually really interesting. And then you've got, you know, your upscale malls and your less upscale malls and there's differences in how they're treated by stores. It's just the whole thing is fascinating. And it all depends on the American consumer. That's that's the economic name of the game right now is right is what consumers are thinking, what they're willing to spend their money on, how they're feeling about this economy and where they're going to decide to take us. Right. Because, you know, businesses are having really profitable years, but that's not translating into higher wages consumers are adding debt. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And with talking to Alana at this mall in Butte, like you said, that was just cold calling, finding 
a, a mall manager. Yeah. How many malls did you try? If, if I, I can take I it to the I don't know. We have an extremely talented uh, staff sure. of producers here at Marketplace who do all the dirty work. I just get to sit in front of the microphone all day and talk. <laughs> well, that's very nice. Yeah. Uh, that's great. There was a, a story that Amy Scott did in September about how various malls are just turning all sorts of different empty spaces that they have into, she's talking about go-kart tracks, mm -hmm. libraries, school classrooms, medical clinics. Right. Uh, this Butte Mall, it sounds like it's 300 people at desks being a call center yeah. instead of being a, a pennies or whatever it right. was. Right. Look, it's, it's, Very a, creative. it's a huge piece of our economic infrastructure, all these malls across the country. Yeah. And what do you do with them? They are built infrastructure, right? They're built environment. They're investments. Somebody owns the mortgage on those. Somebody is paying leases and fees on those. So you got to fill them to generate the revenue. And how do you do that? And if it takes a go-kart space, you do a go-kart space. It's amazing to think of them as just large structures now. Right. Like, what do you yeah. what do you fill it with? When they're empty and you drive by them, it's really depressing. You know, yes. there's, there's nothing that will lessen the economic mood or deflate the economic mood faster than a giant unused mall with acres of parking spaces, which are empty, no lights on, no store branding. I mean, that gets really depressing in a hurry. And then that has knock-on effects for what it does to the rest of the surrounding economy. You know, there's not going to be foot traffic, the, you know, the bagel yeah. shop nearby and the coffee shop, all of that. So much as we may diss them, as it were, and, you know, going to the mall and all this, they're really important. They're vital. I'd imagine most people know the story of American malls just through that driving by theirs mm -hmm. experience. Like I, I think mm -hmm. most people know like in granular detail how their local mall right. is doing For sure. and, and otherwise just maybe have a vague sense of, that's exactly ah, right. they're shrinking. That's about that's it. That's exactly right. Well, and also uh, in terms of retail in general, apparently U.S. retail sales are up 3% this past holiday season overall. So, you know, that's that's some growth there. But that's mostly driven by online shopping and shopping at stores is down and, and U.S. retailers have closed 9,000 stores in yeah. 2019, yeah. which I think people also don't know is because it's such an overall sweeping phenomenon. Well, yeah. The other part yeah. of that, though, is that people who shop online are getting their stuff delivered to their door, you know, and you can get it if you time it right. You can get it same day and you don't have to wait to go to, you know, the Best Buy or wherever to get what you want. Look, the common denominator here has to be consumer spending. It has to be retail spending. Yeah. And, and in a way, in the macroeconomic sense, it doesn't really matter, right? If consumers are spending, that is a net positive. The catch, of course, is that if they're spending on Amazon, that leads you to a whole different category of economic infrastructure behind it, right? Great warehousing facilities, great meaning big, lots of entry-level jobs that are difficult. If you've been reading some of the coverage in the New York Times about the warehousing economy that Amazon runs, they are back-breaking jobs. They are very closely monitored. There's little opportunity for rest or for error. I mean, they're they're heavily yeah. metered. For using um, the bathroom, as far as I know. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's one category. And then the other category is, you know, the brick-and-mortar stores where you can go and you can have a conversation with a salesperson who, you know, isn't lifting heavy boxes, but is also probably not making too terribly much above minimum wage. And so that's an entirely different kind of economic infrastructure behind that. And those are the competing retail narratives in this economy that it's only been, you know, Amazon's been around 25 years. It's really been popular for 15-ish, you know, 10-ish. And that is the, the changing face of American retail that I think is part of the overall change in the American labor market, right? Because you have different kinds of jobs, you have different salary sets, you have different skill requirements. And that is actually the challenge of how to sustain an economy 
when you have that kind of fundamental change going on sort of behind the scenes? There may not be an obvious or findable answer, but is there any floor to the declining of the that second type of the of the retail store type of selling things like well, like mean, maybe I, that can you know, just they sort could of all go out of business and amazon yeah. could run everything uh, you know could it happen sure is it going to happen tomorrow no but consumers want what they want when they want it and they want it cheaply and if i can get it delivered to my door even next day for a good price with guaranteed service why would i not do that then get in my car, drive five miles, see if they have the item. Oh, they don't. I have to go to a different place. I mean, I'm being deliberately dystopian here, but mm-hmm. that's the reality, right? Another sector we've got here that makes me think of the overall change thing, too, is agriculture. You know, long, long ago, there was a time when most Americans lived on a farm. Yep. And then that just is the past. It's just not a it thing is, anymore. It is gone. You guys have done a lot of reporting on agriculture, and recently you went to Iowa, yeah. and you drove a combine harvester. <laughs> it was super cool. So we went, actually, to talk to people about the thing that's on CNN over your shoulder right now, the, the trade deal and agriculture, and, and oh, yeah. the big part of it that is this phase one deal. But more to the point, you know, the thing that got hit, the slice of this economy that got hit the hardest in the trade war is American agriculture, because the Chinese said, all right, fine, you're going to tariff, you know, half of what you buy from us at 25%. We are going to tariff pork and soybeans, or we're just not going to buy them, or we're going to search for other opportunities. And so American farmers have had to deal with two competing things. One is a disruption of their market chain, right? They have had to find different markets for their products because the Chinese aren't buying. And as a result of that, they have lost money in the tens of millions and billions of dollars. The Trump administration has set up what it calls the market facilitation program. It's the payouts that it's making to farmers. But but to a person, every one of the farmers I've spoken to in the past year and a half, and it's been, if not dozens, then certainly more than a dozen, have said to me, yes, this money helps, but I would much rather have my market back. And I'll give you a really good example. We mm-hmm. spoke with a third-generation farmer when we were in Iowa. We asked her about the market facilitation program. And she said, yes, we got $113,000 in 2019. $113,000. $113,000. Yeah. Their crop input fees, that is to say labor, machinery, seed, and fertilizer, that alone, right? Forget land, forget the advance they get from the bank to pay for the machinery, all that. Just their crop input fees were $1.3 million. So, wow. So she's out of pocket, nine, you know, $1.2 million basically. She'd rather have the market. When she had market access with her crops, she was making money, right? It's been a, it's a multi-generational farm. Her family's been on this land for 100 years. But in 18 good. months, she's out of luck. What do you do with that? It's this larger phenomenon that I, I think almost nobody knows is happening, but it's two things that, one, the government throughout this trade war has been sending billions and billions of dollars to American farmers, far yeah. more than the, the normal subsidies that were yeah. happening before. Yeah. And then the second thing is farmers are still in a bunch of trouble. I don't want people to come away from this thinking, oh, farmers are just getting boatloads of money and they're very it, lucky. It's, like, it's, no, re- it's, hard. it's really interesting. So the Market Facilitation Program, MFP is what it's called, which is the Trump administration's payouts to farmers to make up for the damage done by the trade war, yeah. is in excess of $12 billion. It is larger than the auto bailout yeah. from Detroit at the beginning of the financial crisis. 
not to interrupt, but a yeah, total no, amount fine. here of $28 billion yeah. over the past two years yeah. versus 12 for all the car makers. Right. right. It's, it's crazy. A, it's a ton of money. Yeah. And yet farmers still struggle, right? They're in debt and they're dependent on weather and there was flooding this spring. I mean, you know, it's been it's been not great for American farmers. Yeah, that too. I think I have a lot of people in the Midwest and I'm from Illinois. I don't know if everybody knows there was huge flooding around yeah. the Mississippi River, Man. like all of 2019. It's really hard. <laughs> well, if, if they listen to Marketplace, they know, because we've got folks along the river that we talk to. But yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's really bad. It's really bad. And in terms of their market, so the tariffs have happened with China, and so now China is not a market. Has there been something in particular stopping them from selling somewhere else? I feel like that would be the free market to your answer is just well, find another nation. Sh- right. Just know? find another nation. Just do that. Of course. But supply chains take years and decades Ah, to find and grow and mature into a mutually beneficial arrangement. And we have now been working on the, we, American farmers, have been working on the China market for decades, Mm. for decades. And in 18 months, that market has evaporated. We will see what happens now with the signing deal, right? There are, we don't know what's in it still, but there are reports that there's a huge component of it that's Chinese agriculture purchases. We'll see. But is that going to make them whole? I don't know. What's the betting that they know what's in it? Uh, what's the yeah, that's, well, so that's, that's a really good question. <laughs> you know? Like, we don't one, know. because One has to imagine they know, but they're not telling us. Yeah, yeah. You know. Among other farmers, you recently talked to Brian Duncan, who is yeah. a, a farmer and the VP of the Illinois yes, Farm Bureau. He, he does hog and corns and soybeans in Polo, Illinois. Yeah, good. Ah, oh, love it. One of the first things that You came don't actually up, know where Polo, Illinois is, right, do you? No, I'm, right, I'm from okay. the suburbs of All Chicago, right. so <laughs> I, I don't really know. <laughs> that's not really I, Illinois. I'm just rooting for the state. Got gotcha. uh, <laughs> One of the first things he said when he talked to him last was he was excited about a deal with Japan, which is like maybe a market to find. But at the same time, it seems like there aren't any just countries out there that have a pile of money and haven't spent it on food yet. Like like you say, it seems like the chains take time. Yeah, and Uh, it's also (laughs) scale, right? I mean, China's got 1.3 billion people. Yeah, sure. They're having a horrible instance of swine flu over there, right? Some huge percentage of their herd is dying. The pork crop is dying. I don't even know if you call it pork or crop. But until this agreement gets signed, they're not buying American hogs. Yeah. So, you know. Another, and I, I framed it as a, a sector of the U.S. economy because it's all one big, big world. Yeah. But we're also looking at just the overall Chinese economy is very important to us. And one thing going on there that uh, you just mentioned is that they have a massive just outbreak of disease among yeah. their pigs. Yeah. And apparently it doesn't transfer to humans in any way. Over 100 million pigs, more than a third of their herd, is the estimate uh, that they have lost, which is just an enormous thing going on. Right. And it apparently has spiked inflation in China and is is impacting their entire economy. Pork is a staple of the Chinese diet, right? When we were living over there, you can't, my wife and I, you can't turn around without getting pork in a dish. It's amazing. Oh. But the catch is, when you have a supply shortage like that... Prices go up, and whatever the government's trying to do to control inflation can't work because the guy in the corner selling the pork needs to make back what he gets, right? In purely Machiavellian terms, it, it would be a great opportunity for American hog farmers, right? It would be almost a bigger market than we could supply. The catch, of course, is now we're in a trade war, and nobody's buying that. And when we look at China overall, also, when did you live there? I, I didn't realize that. We were, we were, my wife and I were there in 95 to 97. Oh, wow. We were in Beijing okay. at the, in the Foreign Service. Do you ever go back? Uh, we've been back many times. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's great. The change in the last 23 years, extraordinary. My wife and I spent Thanksgiving of 1996 in Shanghai, and we stayed at a hotel on the Bund, which is the grand boardwalk, and there's all kinds of old colonial buildings from the colonial period over there along the Huangpu River. 
and it's yeah. and it's great and it's amazing. But back in 1996, you could stand there and you would look across the river, and it would be all low-rise concrete factories. And now, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of Shanghai. You stand on the Bund and you look and you see those buildings that, in the space of 25 years, have turned the east bank of the Huangpu River basically into Hong Kong. Right? Yeah, just skyscrapers you, and. You go to yeah. Shanghai today. And you stand in the middle of People's Park, and if you swap out the guys selling green onion pancakes for hot dog vendors, you could be in Central Park in New York. There's an H&M, there's a flagship Marriott, there's a Ferrari dealer. I mean, it's extraordinary, right? They've got a subway that beats the hell out of New York City subways. Oh, no. It's ama- oh, it does, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing, right? So the change in the Chinese economy the past 30 years has been remarkable. The catch, of course, is that the rest of the global economy is trying to adjust to the presence of... China in the global economy when China's not really playing by the rules. I mean, we all know that, right? Part of the driver behind the trade war that the president started, while you can quibble with his mechanics, the thrust of what he wants to get done, which is not getting done in this phase with one deal, right? But the thrust of what he wants to get done, changing intellectual property theft and patent protections and technology transfer, all of that stuff is legitimate. It's a huge issue for American companies. It's That's yeah. all true. That's real. As far as that incredible massive growth like how much of that depended on some form of cheating or some form of uh, not playing by the rules yeah uh, all of it all right? of it. Oh, okay. I mean, you know right you've got state-owned enterprises over there there is a command economy i mean it's a different place they like to believe different rules and the problem is if they want to play in the global economy among nations and be treated fairly then they have to figure out a way to play by the rules and they haven't yet i see it also seems like it's just hard to operate a trade war it's extremely broad ideas but i I feel like trade is based on exchange and uh, working together and so then to be butting heads about it by not trading anymore it seems like it's like i understand the thrust of it and it's very hard to benefit right the challenge is who pays for a trade war and much as the president might like to say that china is paying for the tariffs and is suffering for the trade war The fact is American consumers and businesses are paying the entire cost of the tariffs. And while the Chinese economy is suffering, so too is this one because of the president's actions, no matter what the fundamental motivation is. You say often on the show, and then we'll have links to many recent studies as well that all say that basically every tariff going on, the president says it's it's being paid for by Chinese people and government. And it's, it's really just being paid for by us spending more money on things that as, is, as that U.S. Is correct. people. That is yeah. correct. And the billions of dollars that the president says the government is collecting from the tariffs is coming from American taxpayers and consumers. Would it just be kind of politically impossible to come to the American people and say, I know this costs you money, but it's critical that we defeat this other country in, in an economic war? That, that like, would be, you know? It would be really interesting and refreshing to see. I mean, yeah. you know. Because that's what's going on, right? The president is making this calculation that he can say one thing to the American people and another to the Chinese and not have anybody really call him on it. Yeah, because, well, especially any war or or even just big policy project, it seems like there needs to be some kind of end game and, and you might need the person coming after you to do it. So, I don't know, it seems important to frame it honestly and openly for that to happen i don't know one would imagine maybe i'm maybe i'm just a childlike uh, rube who doesn't understand things but yeah (laughs) thank you for not agreeing i'm a rube Uh, i appreciate it sometimes silence is the best way to go (laughs) and in particular with this one very specific thing going on in china of just a bunch of the pigs all dying off it seems like is there any 
I don't I'll almost call it humanitarian need to like selling more of our pork to them and working out more of a trade well, deal. To so look, that I mean, out. we we sold grain to the Soviets in the in the 70s, right? You're probably too young to remember that, but the, I've, the, I've read about it. Yeah, yeah, you know. So if you can do that with the Russians, with the Soviets, maybe you could over over there. But look, times are different. Yeah, yeah. With U.S. farmers in general, again, is this massive bailout to cover for a lot of the damage of the trade war, but yeah. also they're dealing with flooding and climate change and massive amounts of debt. How sustainable is U.S. farming in general? I know that's a massive question, but... Well, it, uh, look, it has to be. The question isn't whether it's sustainable, right? It will be. We've been feeding ourselves as a nation for 240 years. The, the yeah. catch, of course, is who's going to be doing the farming. And, and the folks that I talk to out in Northeast Iowa a number of months ago are all multi-generational families on the same piece of land. But as we all know, a lot of the farming that's happening now is agribusiness, it's corporate farming, it's giant enterprises. And the challenge is, do the smaller family farms of 1,000 acres or 240 acres, do they survive? And I don't know. I mean, one woman I talked to, she doesn't have any kids. She's the last of her generation. She's 60-something years old. Oh. We'll see what happens with her land, you know? We'll obviously be growing food. It's, it's just a question of who's going to be doing the growing. Yeah. Right. Uh, according to Planet Money's The Indicator, U.S. farmers were $416 billion in debt as of December 2019. Yeah. Debt is carryable, but also there needs to be something. Somebody's got to pay it eventually, right? I mean, you have to make payments. Yeah. yeah it's tough. And also, uh, there's another sector here I was looking at of coal mining. Uh, which in particular, I think coal miners were given a lot of attention in the 2016 election. And not that they shouldn't be, you know, pay attention to them. But that is a sector that that election in particular, the current president made a lot of, I think, sort of branding as like, I am the guy who, among mm -hmm. other things, can help the coal miners. It seems like that has not come to pass. Well, it has not. I mean, the, the fact is that there are market forces that no matter what the politicians say, the market's going to do what it wants to do. And right now, the market is trending toward cheaper and cleaner natural gas. It's trending toward greener overall. Right. Coal is difficult and expensive and dirty. It's also, as a slice of the American labor force, relatively small. Yeah. And that is something that doesn't get a lot of attention, right? I mean, I think there are more employees of, like, the Target Corporation than there are in all of American coal mining. It's long. It's historic. There are sections of this country which are hugely dependent on it, and that has to be acknowledged. But the response has to be reality-based. Yeah, that that's, seems so important that it seems like it's sort of beyond any U.S. government's ability or policies or anything to change, you know, like 100 years of moving away from coal. Look, you know? market, for, market <laughs> forces are inexorable. They yeah. just are. Look, I mean, we were talking about Amazon earlier. Because, yeah, we've got The Atlantic this month, January 2020, said that American coal consumption plunged in 2019, which reached uh, its lowest level since 1975, mainly because electrical utilities switched to cheaper natural gas, cheaper renewables. Right. If those things cost less money and pollute less, it's right. kind of hard to uh, ignore. Right. And there's an increasing on. consumer drive toward that. And as we all know, younger people in this economy are much more conscious than some of the older generations. And they are driving that and they want that and they're going to get it. That's just the way it's going to go. And also, as you mentioned, it's a, a very, very small group of people doing it, partly because we've mechanized it, but also yep. partly because there's only a few states really where coal is mined. And as of 2014, there were about 76,000 people doing it, which is about the same number of people as are in the bowling industry. That's 69,000. Skiing, 75,000. And travel agencies, 
close to 100,000 back in 2017 when the Washington yeah. Post reported this. Yeah. It's they, a they, group of people, but it's not like the backbone of the entire country or something. Right. Critically important in those regions, and we have to acknowledge that. But uh, in the macro sense, the market is changing and, and politicians and, and people need to acknowledge that. Well, and also it seems like there's also a lot of politicians, especially Democrats, arguing, hey, the coal miners should uh, – we should train them to do a new job and we should find them a new a new business to be in. Is that like a nice thing to be suggesting to well, them? So look, I don't know that's, if people that's like the, that. That's the easy <laughs> thing to be suggesting, right? The yeah. easy thing to be suggesting is transition assistance, which is the, the bureaucratic name for that. The problem is delivering on it, right? I mean, Obama said it. Politicians have been saying it forever. The catch is – if they have to move away from home to get a new education and find a new job, maybe they're not willing to do that. If they have to change their lifestyle to do that, maybe they're not willing to do that. So it's not just as simple as saying, listen, here, take this 14-week course and you can go become a coder when your family's been in coal for generations and everybody you know lives in West Virginia and that's where your family is. That It's not so easy. It's like, hey, doctor, my arm hurts when I do this. Right, so don't do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, right. It's, right. it's not a great policy right. choice, I think. Right, right. Then in terms of the coming election, we we had, have elections all the time, but uh, 2020 in particular, I'm, I'm curious if coal miners or another job will be used as a, a sort of, I don't want to say prop, but like a, a thing that candidates are like, I'm the guy of this job and that's why. Uh, uh, yeah, Joe the Plumber and all that, right? Uh, you remember yeah, Joe the Plumber from yeah. way back? I don't know. I think it's going to be a different economic conversation this year because the president is running on a really strong economy. And the challenge for Democrats, whoever winds up getting the nomination, is to say, yes, 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 the economy is great under President Trump, but vote for me. That's a tough conversation to make. Yeah. So I think what you're going to start hearing about, in addition to Medicare for All and all of the things that have been talked about in the debates, is Democrats addressing inequality and how the middle class has been hollowed out. A lot of the standard Democratic talking points for years, but the fact is actually inequality is growing in this economy. There is a bigger wage gap. I mean, all of those things. And I think that, you know, I'm a business and economics guy, not a political reporter, but my guess would be the economic conversation this time is going to be President Trump saying, the economy's great, vote for me. And the Democrats saying, yes, the economy's great for the top 1% for corporations, but working people in this economy don't have it. Right. And so, yeah, it won't be reliant on a specific right. like, but what about the construction right. backhoe operator? I, I, I don't think you'll we'll know, see that. that. You know, the the competing thing. dialogue that Trump and Clinton had in 2016, where Trump was saying, look, we are going to restore America, make America great again by yeah. turning the economy back to where it was in the 50s with steel and coal. And Hillary Clinton saying, we're going to retrain those people for high tech jobs. That's not the conversation we're going to have. I, I right. absolutely don't believe that. Pass that. Yeah. yeah. Many thanks to the folks at Squarespace for their support of today's show, The Cracked Podcast. They want to bring this to you because they want to bring an entire website to your life. You want to have a website that looks great, that works great, that fits every device and system and purpose, but most people don't have their own website. Or maybe they have a business that doesn't have a website yet, or a writing thing that they do that just isn't online yet. It's sitting in a, a drawer or or some other non-internet analog sort of space. Terrible. Publish it. Get a website. How does all that work? It's very, very simple if you use Squarespace. If you don't, it's super confusing and hard. But Squarespace makes it easier than ever with beautiful templates created by world-class designers. 
Their e-commerce functionality helps you sell things if that's what you're doing. Their analytics help you grow your website in real time if that's a thing you'd like to do. And, and you probably do. We always want to grow our website. And your website will be optimized for mobile right out of the box. So whether people are using a phone or a tablet or probably some upcoming smartwatch that you can read the internet with, we'll see what happens. Whatever happens, Squarespace will be on top of it. So why don't you get on top of how great their service is? Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked. We are looking at small sectors, but it would be strange to not look at the stock market, which is maybe the most famous uh, economic indicator. And in terms of the economy is strong right now, is that the main way it's strong? That the, the no, Dow the, Jones the economy, is the highest the it's ever been? The economy is legit strong. So I'm going to say this, and, yeah. and people who listen to Marketplace will know what I'm going to say. The, the stock market is not the economy, right? And the economy right. is not the stock market. But they are adjacent. And here's the deal. Stock market is a bet on the future, right? It's a bet mostly being done nowadays by computers and algorithms. And that's what's driving really? the market to record highs. What about the guys in the bright jackets and the yeah, guys floor? in the bright jackets? It, it, the the floor of the New York Stock Exchange is getting increasingly depopulated as computers take over. Oh man, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know what CNBC is going to do, but just a lot um, of androids, same that, jackets. That's exactly you know? right. Yeah, but but look, a lot of what's been happening. So let's talk about the stock market, right? That's yeah. being driven by algorithmic trading based on what computers and monitors are seeing in terms of a trade deal or the jobs report, or those kinds of things in the moment, right? So let's discount the stock market for a second and look at actually what is happening in the real economy. Uh Gross domestic product is at 2 point something-ish percent, which is fine. It's not great, but it's fine, bumping right along. The job market is really strong, right? Mm -hmm. We we have been told we're at maximum employment. I don't know if that's right, but 3.5%, 50-year low, that's legit. There are more people to come off the sidelines, as we're told every single month, because the unemployment rate stays low and we're adding jobs. Wages, while flat the past year, have been growing, not as much as we want to see them, but they have been growing. People who want jobs in this economy generally can find them, even if they're not as high paying as we would perhaps hope they would be. Consumer confidence is high. Companies are making money. Things are generally strong and stable. The catch, of course, is that macroeconomic growth is slowing, not just here, but also globally. There is this trade war still going on with China, despite what's going on. Well, they've changed now to the impeachment hearings. But despite, <laughs> despite what was going on on CNN earlier with, with the signing ceremony, we still have as much as 25% tariffs on $370 billion worth of Chinese imports, which is to say- Quite a bit. Almost three quarters of what we're importing from China, we're paying up to 25% more for than we were two years ago. Three quarters. Wow. Right. We import plus or minus $550 billion worth of stuff. We're tariffing $370 billion worth of stuff right now. So there's that. There are sanctions and tariffs coming against Europe for World Trade Organization violations that they've had. The president likes to talk a lot about car tariffs, although not as much recently. There is unrest in the Middle East. There are a not small number of what analysts like to call downside risks. Okay. And as we head into an election year, just to get it back to the prior question, I think that's one of the challenges for the president is to maintain the narrative of a strong economy with some really substantive economic challenges and then political military challenges that will affect confidence. I mean, as I'm sure you saw 10 days ago uh, during the missile strikes, 
it happened after the market closed in New York, but almost instantaneously, the major indices, the futures for those indexes were, were down a percent and a half. And that's a sign of jitteriness that I don't think any investor, let alone a person running for office, wants to see. And that leads to a, a great concept that I picked up from your show, which is the idea of a priced-in event <laughs> or a priced-out event. Yeah. Because we see, like, enormous things happen yep. in the news and a yep. sort of wonder, oh, does this impact the economy at all? And yeah. the, the blowing up a, a general in Iran did. Right, because you don't know what's coming. So here's the deal with priced in, you know. So trade deal is being signed today. The stock market is up, Dow's up maybe a half a percent, right? Which, imperfect metric, but it's a metric. Yeah. One would imagine that on news of a deal, however marginal, to ameliorate the really bad trade war, that the market would be going, yay, this is amazing, this is great. And right. we up 3%. Three, 3%. It's the two biggest countries. They're right, up exactly. Again. Everything's fine. Go. Yay, right? Yeah, the catch, of course, is that we have known this deal was coming for a very long time. And the more sophisticated people watching this have known that it's coming since the beginning because there was going to have to be some end game to this before the election. Right. Okay? So we've known it's coming. And that's why the algorithms and the actual human traders are like, yeah, you know, fine, whatever. This is great. Average update. That's the priced in phenomenon. The thing yeah. that's not priced in is after we assassinate Qasem Soleimani, the retaliation by the Iranians in the form that it took. You know, rockets flying in the Middle East is inherently destabilizing, and that's what the future traders were looking at. I suppose that has no upsides for the price of stocks? And the price of, like, like maybe not <laughs> well, ter- terrible downsides, well, but look, we're Look, I mean, we're, like, we're up from uh, there, right? We're at, we're at record high, not to be all about stocks, but sure. oil has recovered. That's the metric that I would look at when you're talking about crisis in the Middle East, right? I wouldn't look at stocks. Oil was down uh, like 4% within 18 hours of those strikes mm. because people were like, oh, yeah, okay, we're fine. Everybody's stepping back. But it was, you know, 18 hours of oil being down 4%, which is a lot. And then with the more predictable event of at long last, this phase one of U.S.-China yeah. trade deal is signed, I think, may, yeah, maybe not everybody realizes that that's already been baked into the prices of stocks and things. Baked in. So we're baked not, in, priced in, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In terms of that election year narrative, you recently had on a Politico editor named Sadiq Reddy. We have, he's a Friday regular for us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one thing came up. You said, hey, I think that often in an election year, oh, yeah. by around the summer, voters will have decided what the economy's like and then voting accordingly. Yeah. And he said, yes, we have, there are academic studies that confirm this. Yeah, that's, which, that's which I loved. I, it was my own personal theory. I, I was gratified. You know, Sadiq's been a business reporter longer than I have. And I was gratified to hear that that's actually true. Yeah. I think long about June-ish is the last moment where President Trump will be in economic peril. And if jobs stay strong through the summer, and if unemployment stays reasonable, and if GDP growth stays uh, where it is, I think he legit runs on a really strong economy. And that's what voters are going to carry through the, the late summer and early fall into Election Day. There have been a lot of headlines of just Dow 29,000 and Dow highest it's ever been. Yeah. Did he win now? Like that seems like that's kind of, that's sort of so, a, a so slam look, dunk at so that look, point. Let's let's be clear, yeah. right? The president <laughs> is directly responsible for a lot of what's going on in the stock market, both good and bad. Yeah, his tweets and Larry Kudlow going on the White House lawn, all of those affect the stock market in a way that should make people say, "Don't pay attention to the daily fluctuations." But the fact is that with the tax package of December 2017, uh-huh. which cut taxes on businesses. With his deregulatory press, with his deficit-financed budgets that he's putting out, right? He's spending huge amounts of, of money in a deficit way. Right. That is goosing this economy. There's, there's no doubt 
that that is what businesses are responding to and investors are responding to businesses being positive about their environment. That's a fact. And how how short term are those gains, especially with them being deficit financed and based on debt? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We will see how long it lasts. It will not last forever. And and we we now as a country owe twenty three trillion dollars. Okay, my brain can almost understand that number. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another sector here to look at with just astounding scale in general, which is uh, U.S. internet companies, and yeah. specifically something that you guys have covered on Marketplace and also on your show with Molly Wood, Make Me Smart, mm-hmm. which is that. There is a single tiny part of a 1996 telecom law that is called Section 230 and is basically the foundation of all U.S. Internet business, it turns out. Right. It holds that companies, platforms, cannot be held liable for what is basically put on their platform. So you can't sue Facebook if somebody puts up a a racist or a Nazi or an incendiary post. And that is at the root of what has generated the entire internet economy in this country and by extension the world. The catch, of course, now is that the internet is a different beast than it was in 1996. And there are challenges being brought to commerce, to American democracy, to voters and their knowledge of what's going on that perhaps some are thinking about revisiting. It's really, really interesting. And it's yeah. hard. It's hard, right? It's hard. Yeah, because the internet in 1996, I, I don't know if was all like listeners AOL? Well, I mean, well, were you know, even around. modems and whatever, right? Yeah. Right. It was a law about like GeoCities pages with, <laughs> right. with GIFs right. on them. Right, right. And it's it's hard to measure. We have a, we'll have a link to a slate piece that says that about 20% of U.S. homes had internet in 1996, which is not zero, but it uh, was... I'd, I'd be surprised if it was that high, but yeah, you know. Yeah, not that many people and a very different beast Just, because no yeah. Facebook, no Twitter, right. no no everything else. How rewritable is that law? It, se- it seems like there might not be a consensus or a, a block of the public that wants to change it. I'm not sure that we have a common understanding of the challenges that the Internet in the 21st century poses. I don't want to fall back on a partisan trope, but I think there is a partisan divide on how to think about Section 230. I think there's a tech industry regulatory divide. I think there's a consumer and corporate divide. I don't know the legislative history of the Communications Decency Act, which is, I think, what it was, right, of 96. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, that's That Section 230 is a part of. But I imagine it, it was a discussion that took place uh, not over months, but over years. And I don't know of real substantive conversations now about changing it. I think yeah. people are talking about it on the margins because it's a really heavy lift. It's a really heavy lift. And what do you do with Facebook that 2 billion people on the planet use? Or what do you do right. with Twitter or, you know, Google or take your pick? It's really hard. Yeah, especially because I've got it in front of me here and I'll just read it on air because it's short. It is Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. The entire text is, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. End quote. That's the entire thing. 26 words. It's just very simple. There's not a lot to tweak, you know? It's yep. just what it is, that you can't sue Facebook for how people use it. Right. Or right. other sites. Right. Let's pick on Facebook because they're, you know, the biggie, right? People are using it in ways never conceived of in 1996. Not to make everything political in this very political year, but the challenge that's being posed to the democratic process in this country flows directly from Section 230. 
Yeah, and it, it could be as non-governmental of a solution as like increasing everybody's media literacy or something too. Oh, like, sure. Like it may not even be the law's fault sure. necessarily. You bet. Yeah. Unaware consumers, whether it's retail consumers, political consumers, economic consumers, take your pick. Unaware consumers are arguably the greatest challenge to democracy, to the economy, to retail, to, you know, uh, to a whole bunch of things. And also, and one uh, thing with this law in particular, on Make Me Smart, you guys had a guest, Jeff Kossif, who is a professor of cybersecurity law at the U.S. Naval Academy. If I understand it right, he was saying that this immense legal protection for tech companies is one of the biggest reasons they are based in the United States and mm-hmm. started here. And mm-hmm. and I had always just sort of assumed it's because we have like great colleges and and uh, places for them so to be, you know. I, I, uh, and I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that's part of it. But look, here's the other thing that that people in favor of not messing with 230 will tell you. They will say, look, if we change 230 and make these companies more liable for the content that appears on them, they will go somewhere else. They will not yeah. be American companies, right? They will go somewhere else. And do you really want that? Right. I don't know. But how would they have employees all over the world? Some sort of electronic network of communicating with each other? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If if only somebody could invent that. (laughs) I had never thought of the U.S. as like a Delaware for corporations or Cayman Islands for banking of like like a a safe haven for people to do internet business. Yeah. And then in terms of changes to it, too, that you guys did amazing reporting on the new U.S., Canada, and Mexico trade deal, Mm -hmm. where there's one wrinkle in it that extends this law to Canada and Mexico. That extends 230, yeah. 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 uh, You know, international negotiations are a tricky thing. And and clearly somebody on each of those sides said, yeah, we need the bigger deal to accept part of this. We'll see how that plays out in practice. And it's curious to me why they why I don't know even which country wanted to extend it to Canada and Mexico. Like, did those countries I, I, I want to the answer. start Facebook or something? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also in terms of changing it, on Make Me Smart, you and Molly did, like, year-end predictions. Mm-hmm. And if I remember yours right, for this coming year, 2020, and then last year when you were predicting for 2019, you largely predicted no major change yeah. uh, in terms yeah. of like the big structural things we think of in, for yeah. life in the country. Yeah. And I was, I was right for last year, and you know, yeah. we'll see. Is that mostly driven by when the elections happen? There are two factors. One is political division in this country impedes progress, right? Yeah. That is to say, political division favors the status quo. And number two is there's no big driver among the elites in this country for change. Yeah. Right? I mean, if, if the if the people with all the money and the power wanted change, there would be change. That seems logical. Yeah. Right to your person with money and power. Be, be active. Yeah. Be active. And be an educated consumer of everything. When we've looked at numerous chunks of the economy, are, are there any other like sectors or, or interesting upcoming phenomena that you guys are sort of tracking in the next months or weeks? I think the fallout from the trade pact, uh, whatever that turns out to be, is going to be an interesting one. And then and then consumers through this economy uh, and the American labor force uh, through the rest of the year, I think, is the challenge. Because how they feel, so goes the economy. How much does it come down to people's uh, attitude? Is that a huge an driver? Incredibly of... high amount. Yeah. Uh, consumer confidence, consumer sentiment. How you're feeling about what to do with that $10 in your pocket is remarkably important, truly. Can we placebo affect ourselves into a, a booming and wonderful economy if we want to? Well, look, the economy's booming. The economy's oh, legit booming. We did it. Great. We- Great. <laughs> <laughs> 
folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Kai Ristall for taking the time in between many, many tapings of many, many shows he does to give us a better understanding of the most important things in the economy that almost nobody besides him is talking about. And in our food notes, you will find more ways to listen to Kai Ristall. One of them is Marketplace.org, their website. You can also search for the show Marketplace. Uh, that should just be the whole name in your podcast player. It's also probably on the radio where you live if you're in the United States. You will also find another podcast called Make Me Smart with Kai and Molly, which is Kai Ristall and his fellow Marketplace host Molly Wood getting into a really, really interesting topic in a deep dive and fun way. You'll also find two other interesting footnotes. One of them is the town of Polo, Illinois. I have looked up where it is and realized I've probably been through there. It's population 2,355, and it's on Route 52, which I've taken toward Dubuque, Iowa. So I've probably been by your town. I'm so sorry, I forgot about it. All you folks in Polo in Ogle County, I'm working on it, I'm sorry. And there's also a footnote to a tweet from Donald Trump. This was January 9th of 2020. He tweeted, quote, U.S. cancer death rate lowest in recorded history. A lot of good news coming out of this administration. End quote. Now, here's the thing about that. Obviously, you have to fact check every single thing he says because he's a compulsive liar. However, we're footnoting a CNN report covering a January 8th study published in CA, a cancer journal for clinicians. And they find that the U.S. saw its largest ever single year drop in overall cancer deaths. It was a 2.2% plunge. That happened from 2016 to 2017. So for one thing, it turns out it takes a long time to measure cancer deaths, apparently. Like, our latest numbers are from 2017. Donald Trump was president for the vast majority of that year. I feel you only get to take credit for it if you do a policy thing that impacts it, instead of just, like, having an inauguration event and drinking Diet Cokes in the Oval Office. I don't think that really uh, makes you the person who did it, but... Either way, we have a president who will take credit for every good thing and shun credit for every bad thing. And so following a media source like Marketplace is very, very important, right? Because as you heard from Kai, he was very even-handed about the pros and cons of things that president has done. And so hearing about it from him and other good sources like that is uh, the thing you need in your media diet as we approach voting for whether this continues. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Kelly McNamara and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, please let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where science reporting in general, just on cancer or anything else, you have to examine it closely. Like that cancer headline I just talked about doesn't clarify that the number is from a few years ago. Gotta read the article. Very complex. My own Twitter account, much less complex. It's mostly tweets about Snoopy, and it is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzstagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. <laughs>